Hey, hey, welcome to RDNFT. That's research and data on NFTs. This is a weekly podcast focused on the latest research, news, and data on NFT marketplaces, technology, uh, the macro economy, you name it. If it affects NFTs, we're going to talk about it. And we also will spend time every single week talking about what's happening at RD. I am Rob the Economist. You can find me at Rob the Economist on Twitter. And I'm joined by my two faithful co hosts. My name is Lucas. I'm the senior manager of analytics at Artie. You can find me at the underscore NFT underscore analyst on Twitter. And I'm excited to chat all things data research and Web3. Hi, I'm Shazam Bomb on Twitter. I'm a senior backend developer slash Solidity developer for Artie. We're back this week after a couple weeks away, mostly due to illnesses running around my house. Um, And man, what a lot has happened in that time. Uh, Today, we're going to focus on one thing and one thing only, and that's the FTX saga. And you'll hear both of my co-hosts in this episode talking about um, some suspicions or expectations that there was probably some insider trading of a very particular type. And literally within minutes of us recording this podcast, we, we, we saw some news that that actually might be the case. Um, And there's a few other really kind of poignant, nuanced uh, uh, things that both of them in particular are going to point out. Um, So enjoy the episode. Let's dive in. I'm going to start kind of at the beginning. I'm sure everybody who's listening knows who FTX is, but there's a couple of things. Like I was just going back through the timeline and it's like I became aware of them earlier this year, really. Um, I guess I knew about them last year, but they had... uh, a Super Bowl commercial, and then after that, they're in the news a bunch. But the other thing that it also made me realize is, and people had pointed out, but that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried is 30 years old. And as somebody who's only slightly older than 30, like, that's a lot of money to give to one dude who basically had, like, a year of trading experience. (laughs) I think he's, like, the youngest billionaire ever or something like that. (laughs) Or, like, he's the youngest billionaire or was right for at, at least the current era it's uh no because uh what's her name kylie jenner is a billionaire and she's like oh. 20 early 20s yeah she she became a billionaire when she turned like 20 I think. he found he <laughs> fell into some Dang. financial metric though like i can't remember exactly what it was but basically the number was he's got a lot of money for 30 years old <laughs> yeah exactly yeah exactly it's it's pro yeah it's probably something like that because she's she's a billionaire from like a specific like set of products and stuff like that that came from something else so it might be right. that like he's the the largest self made billionaire or something I don't know um, but yeah either way it's a lot of money and the difference is too like I love how we're starting this is the Sam Bagman Fried versus Kylie Jenner debate uh, <laughs> that everybody's having um, it's it's funny because like her wealth is like it's her wealth like it, it's in a company and stuff that she owns but right nobody's financial future is wrapped up in her actions or anything like that, at least for the most part, whereas his is like massive amounts of debt and leverage that you have to be very, very careful with even on a small scale. But when it gets to large scales like this, like obviously it could really spin out of control on you as, as we're all learning. Um, But so basically the thing that kicked it off from um, this month, basically, because before this month there was, FTX was talking about, I guess, tried to help Elon Musk by Twitter. I don't know if they're actually one of his financiers. I couldn't, I didn't see that, but I know they offered uh, to give him. He didn't accept it. He didn't accept it. They did offer to fund it, though. 
Yeah, yeah, they're offering like five billion dollars or something as far as the deal. Um, and then so there's that that was you know last month, and then now November 2nd, uh, Coindesk reports a leak balance sheet that showed Alameda Research, um, which is Sam Bagman Fried's uh firm, it's a crypto trading firm, was heavily dependent on FTX's native token FTT. Um, and Reuters is who I'm using as a source here, and they said they're unable to verify the report. But regardless of whether you can verify that or not, it, it looks like it's probably true, by the way, that they hold out an insane amount. And the other thing was they were put this on their books as cash. So they hold their own token, large amounts of which they could just make up as much as they want. And they put it on their books as cash. I think they had, <laughs> I like- I think they had something like 10x what was actually in circulating supply in their reserves. Right. And they were marking it as like, this is like, they were basically taking, okay, we have 10 X of what's in circulating supply. And let's take the current valuation of the token and just multiply it by our reserves. And that's how much cash they have, but that's not how trading tokens or stocks or anything works. Anything. Well, yeah, they, and yeah, literally so they, anything. So they like, basically if, the, they presented the numbers as if supply and demand was not a thing. Like, <laughs> if we increase supply 10x, surely it holds the exact same value. <laughs> it, it's crazy. And it's one of those things, too, where, first of all, like, Sam Bagman-Fried is the guy who runs this company. However, there is a lot of other adults in the room, right? Like, this is not just one person who's, like, behind, you know, hiding behind their desk, like, writing numbers down like no it's good it works lots of people are looking at this um and it seems like there's been throughout the last year or so some hints at there's there were some issues but nothing close to what was actually going on and that tells me two things one thing is that like first of all a lot of people didn't say anything so either they didn't realize even if they're looking at the books they just somehow didn't realize what seems very obvious at least in hindsight or they realized and just decided not to tell anybody it's either gross negligence or absolute evil, right? It's one of the two. <laughs> There's no in between. Um, uh, I, I do want to note, like, I, I've seen a lot of things on Twitter, and it's not like I can verify any of this stuff, but allegedly a lot of this stuff was held pretty tight to the chest for uh, Sam. And yeah. he had, like, a very small circle of people who actually knew what was going on. And he apparently had some sort of like financial backdoor that he could siphon funds from FTX to Alameda without alerting any sort of like watchdogs or regulators or even like internal auditors. So that, that's true. That's fair. Okay. So he's a small circle of evil friends is what. <laughs> yeah. That's basically is. what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. The, that, that's kind of the way this backs out. Like, I think this is going to be of epic proportions. Like, I think this is going to be like, Enron level of like once we get into some of this just because if you just like look at the basic timeline it's like exactly what we talked about last week as being like a gray area for traders much less like the actual market creators who are like literally create a currency hold it in reserve prop its value up via marketing like to the public and get them to buy in as individual investors and then leverage that for their actual USD value, like their real hard currency to fund a secondary unrelated business, essentially. Like if you just think about just that like one liner, that's, it's crazy. It's like honestly crazy. <laughs> it's very Enron too. It That's another thing is like, <clears throat> there's been the Enron Lehman 
comparisons. I think it kind of fits both in terms yeah. of what's been happening in the impact. Um, the so let's let's keep going through the timeline because I do want to yeah. get all, all of this salacious stuff too that you guys have been seeing on Twitter, and then also just like let's break it down into like what the impact might be. Because the next thing that happened that's really interesting to me. So you have this this report from CoinDesk comes out basically tells you that FTT is all of FTX, like that's all their funding, is their own money that they made up, um, which brings into question a lot of things in terms of like how you should be able to use your own tokens. And these tokens too aren't like, it's not Bitcoin where like you're, people are going out and actually trading it in other places and it has its own kind of momentum and value. It's all tied to the FTX platform. Like these are like rewards for discounts and stuff that people get. Um, so yes, you can trade them and you can get money from them. But the idea that you could then, as you said, Ian, just convert it to cash, even if the supply was low enough, uh, is is not how things work anyway. Like there has to be some value to it other than the fact that like you say it has value. So then on November 6th, you have Binance comes in and CZ comes in and says that, okay, we want to help. Um, you know, we think that there's, you know, something um, obviously going on here and um, FTX needs our help. This is after they also said that they were going to liquidate all of their FTT holdings, which had a massive impact. Uh, Bankman Freed comes out and says FTX is fine. Assets are fine. This is on November 7th. This is five days after the news broke a day after Binance says they're liquidating all their holdings. And at this point too, like you have to see the writings on the wall a bit, at least from just the story and then Binance actually taking action. But it seems to me like they saw the writing on the wall and said, let's wait, maybe Binance will, will, will save us. Um, it's crazy how like the, the, the narrative, like the playbook for a collapsing crypto uh, entity it just happens the same way like celsius they were like oh yeah everything's fine everything's fine don't worry about it on twitter and then the next day everything just falls apart same thing with um uh luna right luna, they post yeah. they're like oh yeah everything's fine it's gonna be fine the, it's gonna repeg don't worry guys and then it just collapses like it's crazy how once you say we're fine don't worry about it the the market's just like oh you're dead okay <laughs> <laughs> oh okay you're dead yeah, yeah I mean, that's, should... that's kind of true of all great collapses right like there's somebody that's like everything's fine right right it's fine <laughs> and the next day it's like oh this is not fine <laughs> i'll go through an enron timeline in a bit just just to make the comparison because it is it's very similar and you have the same thing where enron at one point like while they realized that they had an issue with with funding themselves basically and the the government was kind of, was being warned by a bunch of people that they need to look into enron and all this other stuff enron actually came out to this meeting with analysts who gave them i think it was like 55 times their uh, earnings their share price was marked at 55x their earnings and so they came out and said no we should actually be double that as they're collapsing nice. actively they <laughs> no it's actually double it's insane and then so obviously the thing that's really interesting here too, like this is as far as like the sequence of events, like as soon as Binance comes and says like, hey, we're liquidating everything, but we're interested in helping you. We want to buy you out, which seems like, you know, they're being th thrown a life raft. It gives them the chance to look at the books, right? Because then you have to show them the books. And again, like, I don't know what they saw because I've seen the, some similar stuff too, where it does seem like, 
SBF was was definitely was obviously hiding this. It's not like the entire company knew or most people knew none of that, but he's hiding it. But I don't know that he's going to show them those things that would make it very, very obvious. There's essentially nothing behind FTX. Uh, but whatever they showed Binance, they said, no, we're we're not going to uh, bail you out. Like, we're absolutely not going to do that. Within it took like them 24 hours, right? Exactly. That's the thing. It was really fast. And this is if you're doing due diligence on a firm that you're going to buy, part of it is like, well, can I get them for like pennies, right? The question isn't so much like, do I buy them at all? That is part of the question, but it's also like, well, what's the offer, right? If there's almost nothing there, then you offer them pittance, a pittance and you just say, take it or leave it. If they leave it, then fine. And if they take it, great, then hopefully you can turn it into something. But they said, nah, nah. <laughs> I don't want to touch this. <laughs> and now since then, so we have starting on November 10th, uh, so just four days ago, they suspended onboarding new clients as well as withdrawals. That's obviously that's that's the death sentence at that point, right? Is that we're done. Like we're not, you can't take your money out. Nobody new can join. Um, and then there's also uh, some talks with other folks, hopefully trying to raise some capital. Um, and then... Let's see. Chapter 11 starts on November 11th. So they they file for bankruptcy on November 11th. That's obviously they're done. SPF resigns as CEO. And I'll pause here. The guy who takes over. Let me see if I can find his name. Wasn't he the guy who took over Enron? John Ray the Third. Yeah, he's the one who took over Enron. <laughs> it's just Jesus. it's beautiful. Wait, you can't, no, you that, can't make that's this up. not true, is it? Is no, that it's true. Yeah. That's the new CEO of FTX, John Ray III, who was the chairman and president of the Enron Creditors Recovery Corporation after it filed for Chapter 11. This guy, he actually, this is his thing. Like, he just, it makes he, sense. He, yeah. yeah, he takes over massive, massive companies that fail. Um, and I mean, basically, he's distributing up whatever's left. Like, that's that's what he's doing. He's, he's chopping. He's a, he's a butcher. He's a butcher. He's going to chop it up and, and, and dish it out. It's interesting. I mean, people get into like lines of work like that, where they become the person to go to, like the person who decided how to divvy up um, the funds for 9-11 victims and their families is the same guy who did it for the Boston Marathon bombing and a couple other places. He's just the guy you call. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain skill set there, right? What I think yeah. is crazy is though, I didn't realize that it happened. It's like, I thought this was super Enron like, and apparently the guy that fixed it, like did the Enron stuff was like, this looks a lot like it. I should throw my hat in the ring. For this. <laughs> I could do this. this I've is, been this here before. <laughs> oh, you guys got a, a collapsing firm that took on billions of dollars of risk with other people's money. Yeah, I got that. <laughs> um, all right. So very Enron like, and actually maybe we'll stop there. I'll just go through the Enron timeline, um, which this is a thing like, it's more of an accounting lesson. Like I know my brother who's an accountant knows this Enron story really well and had to learn about it in school quite a bit. Cause really what Enron was doing is like manipulative accounting to make it appear like they were profitable. Um, and some of this will sound familiar. So basically Enron is an energy company. Like they originally had like owned pipelines and things like that. Like that was what they did for the most part. And um they eventually got into basically creating like different assets out of commodities. So they're basically like creating options and things like a bunch of derivatives from commodities. But at the same time, they're also like 
handling logistics. So like delivery of things and like they're managing sales between groups and stuff like that. So they do a lot of stuff. It gets very confusing pretty quickly. Um, and then they start this, a, a side company, uh, which is called Chu something. I forget what the name of the company was Chuco or something. Um, which they use essentially basically to like funnel money out of Enron. And so it's like debt that they have at Enron. They actually push over to this other company and pretend that that is then like income to that company. So they erase the debt from Enron and basically make it look like income to this other company that they own. Meanwhile, the debt is actually theirs, right? So it disappears off their books. Um, and so what ends up happening is there's a report, there's a news story from Fortune that comes out. And the I actually reread the story. All it's saying is basically like Enron looks really, really profitable. But if you ask anybody, their analysts, um, anybody who's covering them, they cannot explain to you how they make money. And Enron itself says, actually, the way we make money is proprietary. So we don't have to share it with you. It's like our secret sauce. We do not have to tell you how we make money. That's what ma that's what makes us so good. And you have all these analysts in this story from back in 2001 who are basically saying like, I don't know how they do it, but man, they keep making tons of money. Look at their books and like, look at all the income that they have. Meanwhile, it's all fake. None of it is, or not none of it, most of it's not real. And at some point they basically had $618 million in losses, which they could have covered um, with $639 million of other assets that they supposedly had. Um, but nobody was able, like they weren't able to offload them in time. And then things just start to crumble. But the whole thing starts with a news story and then regulators start to investigate. And then the market realizes, oh, this is not a real company and they collapse. And, you know, there's all sorts of fallout from this. So this feels very much similar to FTX in terms of like one of the big problems here is obviously that they're not actually disclosing things that they're supposed to. And what they do disclose, they're just lying. Right. So those are two things that are really risk. Like you just, how would you know until somebody pointed it out? So until in the nice, I, sh I shouldn't say nice, but the thing here is that like the um, CoinDesk story basically just was looking at the balance sheet for Alameda Research and kind of worked backwards from there. And that was, that's where this whole thing started. The other thing that we, as you point out, Ian, that we learned is that SBF is funneling money to F to um, Alameda Research, which is very Enron-like. They have this other company that they're just yeah. pretending is doing stuff. And then the last thing is that they he he did funnel $10 billion to them, but apparently lost one or $2 billion in the process. Yeah. Now, I'm curious, Ian, on a few things from your perspective. Mm -hmm. First of all, why can't we, like, why couldn't people see this? Like, why isn't it obvious? Because obviously, like, this should be on chain, right? Um. And so just from like, like, what would it take for you to actually go and dig this up if you wanted to see, or Lucas, you too, actually, both, both of you. So like, what I would think, it have taken? I think, I think, uh, actually, it's very similar to kind of what we talked in, in our last episode about, uh, you have a token that you can take a loan out with as collateral, but the token is effectively worthless. So what they would do, what Alameda would do is they would go to FTX and be like, hey, I have a... I have a ton of this FTT token. Um, I want to take out a loan of 10,000 Bitcoin. And they go and they give the FTT to FTX as collateral. And then they just get Bitcoin. And But, you know, it's their token. So they can make however much they want. Or they can kind of 
essentially they're obfuscating taking funds by disguising it as a loan gotcha and exactly. that's how that's how they they you know effectively take user funds um and my god they took a lot that's huh. basically my understanding as well so like the the weird thing is if you even if you're watching these transactions on chain i don't think it would necessarily immediately stand out as like bad because what happened is they they created a currency marketed it a ton but alameda got in pretty early and got a decent chunk of ftx of ftt once the value was way up, they just used the standard like leverage uh, mechanism that FTX had already introduced and said, hey, we have all this FTT coin. We want to take this out in Bitcoin or we want to take out some amount in some, I mean, transfer to USD, whatever it was. And so like there was this loan mechanism. But the same thing that we talked about before is the risk there is like FTT isn't like a blue chip. Everybody's trading it. Everything's happening. Its value was totally dependent on FTX being legit. I mean, basically, <laughs> in the moment that was called into question, everybody was like, wait, all these loans are outstanding on a coin that is going to disappear. And I think that's kind of what we saw happen. It's like it literally just overnight. It was like, oh, wait, that's that's not a good collateral. And then that's kind of what happened. Yeah, it, it, it reads to me also very Lehman-esque in yep. that they, when Alameda took these funds, right? Alameda is a market maker, right? So they mm -hmm. effectively do arbitrage between a ton of different exchanges and stuff like that. And 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 that basically means they have a big pile of money and if they read one price somewhere and they see another one elsewhere and they just swap the tokens for people when trades are issued on books. Um so what they did is they took out all these all this collateral and all of this loans effectively from FTX which were basically just user funds and they're like okay we can make money by doing all this arbitrage and they're like well we need a big pile of money to do that and big pile of money is user inflows so it also seems like what they did is they loaned out a lot of money as well so not only did Alameda take loans from FTX, they took the money that they got from those loans and then loaned it out to other crypto entities as well. Um, apparently, there's there's a graph that shows that um, FTX bailed out Alameda when the Luna Terra collapse happened because Alameda got hit really hard, right? And also another uh, hedge fund, crypto hedge fund, uh, Three Arrows Capital went under yep. when that happened. Um, Alameda was slated for the same thing to go under just like three arrows but ftx bailed them out and you can see like literally this huge gap in a graph of where ftx bailed them out um yep. and then alameda turned around and is like okay we need to buy up these companies that own a ton of ftt bags so basically um what was it it was like Oh God, it was like Bitdesk or something. I don't remember exactly exactly which one it was, but but uh FTX and Alameda bought up these companies that had huge reserves of FTT that they could dump onto the market and potentially destroy uh, basically do what happened from Binance dumping all of this FTT token. So um and it's it it was just house of cards you know like it's 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 it, it it makes me think of all of those home loans from 2008 where they basically took bad debt 
repackaged it, labeled it as good debt, and then sold it to everyone else. And they ha- it, there's like this huge network graph of like that shit happening that I've yeah, seen. The, and it's like, I think one thing that's really scary about this one too is, is like at least housing debt, like it's a little more timeline. You know what I mean? Like there's terms on it and links of time and things like that. Whereas this one could just like infinitely recycle. It seems like it's like take bad debt, package it as good debt, but send it to Alameda. Alameda takes bad debt, repackages good debt, sends it to somebody else. And so like, it's almost got this exponential effect of like leveraging the leverage debt and leveraging that again. And so like, you just get to this massive amount. And I think that's why you see the market react the way it did is because it's like, all of this was basically predicated on a coin that a company made almost like, I don't want to say this, but it, it kind of seems like for this purpose, like the the way they were able to provide this liquidity was by going to the mass market with Super Bowl ads and stuff and getting enough people to put money in that they could collateralize at a large volume and like provide that liquidity. And so I think that's where this like maybe gets to be a little bit worse than Enron. Like it, I know that sounds crazy, but Enron was like kind of doing bad by their employees and by large financial firms. This one was like, what if we did that, but with everybody in the world, (laughs) you know, that's the thing that is, is there's a couple of things like that was fantastic because a few things that are really, really striking to me. The first as somebody who like, I, I got into, I started studying economics I got into undergrad in 2007 and so started studying economics in 2008 and I distinctly remember my professors at the time telling saying you should wait as long as possible to graduate because it's going to be hard to find a job here's why and so seeing it unfold seeing the reaction and then since then all I've done is watch research because I started like my full-time job was reading research trying to understand markets and how macro factors and things affect it starting in like 2012 really and then from there on to the point where when i first started reading research not enough time had passed for people to really analyze the data well years had to pass before we could really look back at the data and say here's how everything went went down here's trading strategies you could have used whatever and through that whole time there's some things that are very obvious and lessons that i just what for whatever reason thought had become baked into any type of market, right? The idea that anything that you are going to collateralize, first of all, you have to understand the risk that's underlying that um, is so simple, but it was proven to such an extreme degree with the financial crisis that like the idea that somebody thinks that you can, you can play a shell game where you just move things around that will not have a value at the end of the day. He either is so inept or his group of insiders are so inept and don't understand things are so overly confident in themselves that they think that rules don't apply to them and they can just do whatever they want and it will never go bad. Or they knew what was going on and just said, well, this is going to collapse eventually. Hopefully we can get out before it does. Like, there's no way that this was like well-intentioned in any way. Um, And the other thing too, is like, as far as like the, like that, game of like, let's repackage assets, let's repackage them, let's repackage them. In the financial crisis, they did that too. I mean, you have like CDS, CDS squared, CDS cubed, like they did it over and over. But to your point, Lucas, these are actual things, right? It is a house or some piece of land. It's a property. So yes, the value is less than whatever the mortgage was, but it does have a value. And at some point you can spin that out into something, right? You could sell that off even at a discount. We're at a place where this is just cash. Like this is people's money and it is disappearing because the they bought it a certain value, the value's gone down. So to 
I agree. Like, I think the potential impact of this is going to be pretty severe. Um, I mean, it's it's far reaching. You have everybody from individual people to large institutions to, I mean, Sequoia Capital is is tied up in this. You have Tom Brady and Giselle possibly losing hundreds of millions of dollars on this. I know we all feel very bad for them, um, but it's it's one of those things where it's like it is going to hit quite a few people. And the lesson to be learned is not new. There is the only thing is the the arena, right? This just happened in the crypto space. And as far as like what's going to happen regulation wise, you know, we've had conversations on here about like decentralized versus centralized regulation, all these things. I don't see how a regulator can look at this scenario and say, if we had had the same types of things in place that we have for banks now, which are specifically to avoid liquidity crises like this, if those had applied to FTX and every other crypto exchange, especially the ones that have failed, like this could have been avoided. So the biggest thing is like, we actually knew the answer, or at least some of the answer, right? You have to be have a certain amount of capitalization. You have to publicly list those things. Some of this stuff they did anyway, but it's like, you need an auditor that you can actually trust who actually gets to see the books. Like there's so many things that are pretty standard that are the solution here, uh, but it's it's too late, right? Like the, you can't go back and you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. It's we're, we're at the point where we are now. I think one of the things you're going to see is a pretty strong reaction, especially internationally um, in terms of regulation. The U.S. is yeah. slow, but I'm really curious to see like what happens in Europe, especially after this. One thing I'm curious about for you, Rob, um, did you see they recently passed an audit? Like they had an auditor come in and give them the green light, like the all clear. And I just um, I can't make sense of that. Like there, that's got to call into question that auditor too, right? Because like, regardless of, I mean, I, I think I'm about as web three, like optimistic as it comes, but like seeing a currency be leveraged to that level at those volumes with like normal people's money as the asset um seems like somebody should have blown a whistle or been like hey hold up something's off here right it i think it's two things so first of all auditing is i mean it's really hard in general but like this whoever that auditor was i forget the the name of of the auditing firm but yeah they're they're in serious trouble like that's this is the exact thing that every auditor wants to avoid and not even this big, obviously, something like this, where you give a green light, say, yeah, everything looks pretty sound. And it turns out the accounting is the thing that's really wrong. And not only that, you had a single news source. It's not even it's not like it's the New York Times. I mean, it was crypto.com like they're they're large enough, but they figured it out and you're an auditor and you didn't see it right that's really really problematic the other side of it is like there are like depending on the type of financial institution you are you get different auditing requirements so like SIFIs, significantly important financial institutions just have different auditing requirements they have different disclosures and things that they have to make you basically can't hide anything now part of that is is like the entire system is essentially viewable, like you can give access to your whole system to somebody in such a way that you couldn't possibly hide anything. Like, um, you know, massive banks, they basically, if you're going to let somebody into all your data, they're going to be able to see everything. You'd have to really, really cook the books to make sure they didn't. And it would have to be pretty widespread. Like lots of people would have to be involved in hiding that. 
Um, so the fact that there is essentially what sounds like a small group of people who are able to control what is seen and what's not means the auditor, I'm sure, just was shown fake things. And now, unless there's a mistake in those fake things that makes it obvious that there is something going on, it's hard to see. Um, it, the other thing, too, is like the... I, I don't know what the scope is for a company like FTX in terms of what their audit is. I'm sure it's, you know, like any other financial institution, it's pretty similar, like a normal bank. But they also, they do really weird, complicated things just as a crypto exchange. It is more complicated. I shouldn't say more complicated. It can be very complicated. Whereas, you know, a normal like retail bank, their products aren't that that complicated. It's not that hard to trace what's going on or follow things. And, you know, I, I'm not trying to make excuses for the auditor because that is no, but clearly, you are right, though. I, I get yeah. what you're saying. Like, if you yeah. if you get fake data that all backs out, well, all you can do is audit like, oh, this is yeah, the math here is sound. But if it's yep. totally if it's totally fake, like you don't know, especially if you don't have uh, the level of access you do at a bank. Another thing is, is like, I'm sure bank auditing has been like, at least to some degree standardized, like very much long so. enough, whereas doing this at this level maybe you're kind of reinventing the wheel, you know, like you don't know what you don't know because this is kind of probably the first biggest audit failure in crypto. <laughs> have you, have you ever been through like a major data audit? Either of you, like not a financial I've done one, but some, no. I, but not nothing to this scale, but I like, I've done it for a couple of companies that were acquired. Yeah. The only reason I ask is because I, I, the, a team that I was on had to go through one and it is pretty, pretty rigorous. But even in that case, because I was going to say, like, the next thing you could do is, like, verify the data itself and, like, again, I guess, look through the, like, on-chain data and stuff, which is very time-consuming and complicated. But if there was a process that's, like, part of, like, it's not just a financial audit, not an accounting audit, it's also we're going to audit the data itself because we can't, right? This should all be on-chain. Let's see if this all checks out. And to your point, Ian, maybe they look at it and go, yeah, these look like loans. These are fine. This is what they do with everybody. Um in my experience, even on the data side, there's a there's a lot of questions and stuff, but they're they mostly take you at your word in terms of like what you're showing them is what's real, right? And I it just it is a really tricky spot to be in. If somebody really really wants to defraud people, they will be able to for a while, right? They can hide it for a while, but then eventually something will come out. You'll make a mistake, or you'll collapse. Right? It's just it won't won't continue. Um, Sorry, yeah. and I think I cut you off. Oh, no, 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 it's fine. Um, yeah, I mean, the I think the failure of the auditors is largely due to the fact that all of this stuff is really new and auditors are used to the banking sector and all of that stuff has been banked in or baked in over like hundreds of years of trial and error and all of the vehicles of, you know, financial vehicles are all pretty known right and and yeah. a lot of this stuff is new for ftx and i think um honestly largely the reason why this was a failure and was a failure on like the proportion of lehman or enron was that it's a centralized exchange um it's that's basically like a bank right they were the, they were trying to do fractional reserve banking as an exchange, essentially. And I mean, if you become a bank, like that's gonna cut, like bring about the same problems that, you know, the previous banking industry had, it's just working on crypto now. So like, I think 
the my lesson here is that decentralized exchanges are the way to go. Yeah. Like that's how mm. you should be trading crypto because decentralized exchanges, they're just code. There, there aren't people there that can pull levers re as like as easily. It's much more auditable. Everything is on chain. So you can clear as day, see what's going on. Um, and if there's a problem, people spot it immediately. So I think the lesson here is that DeFi is better than centralized exchanges and traditional finance just packed on top of crypto because that's not what crypto is, right? Mm. Crypto is supposed to be this decentralized code is law thing. And that centralized exchanges kind of break that, right? Yeah, because think... they literally have order books. They have order books like any other market exchange, right? Like that's mm. that's not that's not real crypto, right? That's what <laughs> yeah, that's what my biggest It's real banking, is. I'll tell you that. Yeah, it's banking. <laughs> yeah, that's what my biggest takeaway is as well. I think it's really interesting. And I'm curious like what what comes of this because I'm curious if the legislation that eventually passes keeps that in mind or pushes everything back towards more like centralization which tends to be like what legislation does but really the takeaway from this for me is is like ftx wasn't like true decentralized web 3 it was like web 2.5 they were like yeah in one one foot in web 3 one foot in web 2 with centralization and the biggest takeaway is like people are corruptible like if there's a person who can pull the levers regardless of if it was intentional even if they're not corruptible they can, you know, they're they're susceptible to mistakes in like very epic proportions. Whereas if this were like a true decentralized um, exchange, to your point, even if this existed, it would have been found in like two days. Someone would have immediately been like, whoa, something's off here. This doesn't make any sense. Whereas when there's a person who can like keep stuff close to the chest in a small circle of people, it can take months or years and the value gets to be bigger, 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 and the fallout gets to be bigger and bigger and bigger. So... I'm interested to see what the legislation does. Like, I, I feel like it could make the problem worse if they don't keep it in mind. But it's just interesting because I think it's more validation for decentralization than like the alternative, you know? And I, I, I do want to say I'm not claiming that like DeFi exchanges are flawless. Like they agreed. definitely have yeah. problems and they're definitely, you know, vulnerabilities and they are hackable. Like the code is flawed inherently humans are flawed inherently they make mistakes so like it's it's not as if DeFi is infallible but it's just more transparent and it's, centralized entities are inherently more opaque it would be really easy totally. for us like if this happened on decentralized i think it would be to a much smaller scale and it'd be very easy for us to say where did it go wrong right you go back you look at the code you look at the the openings, you look at what can be implemented and corrected, whereas right now all of us are kind of in the dark and it's like, was this negligence? Was it incompetence? Was it intentionally malicious? Like you, we still don't really know and won't for a long time. To your point, Rob, like people looked at Enron for years before everybody was like, no, this is like, you know, everything here was wrong, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so like, I'm curious, will we have answers in the next couple of months? Or is this a, you know, two, three, four year legal case where eventually we're like, yeah, this was all malicious. <laughs> yeah, I, the question of how the regulation is gonna react is, is fascinating because it's such a massive thing. And like I said, the symptoms that you're looking at feel very familiar, right? It's, it's Enron and plus Lehman basically. And 
in a in a day and age when one of the things that happened after COVID hit, we reacted as if it was another financial crisis and pumped a bunch of liquidity in, into the economy, which turned out to be problematic in the long run with the inflation and things we're facing now, which then leads to the rates we're facing. Like so, even legislation when the answer is like we've done this before, they get it wrong still, right? Like. The response of COVID is like, we just know this is a thing we can do. We'll do it. The other thing is like, in terms of um, regulation, like I I think that regulators tend in policymakers almost always are regulating away symptoms rather than root causes. And so to both of your points, the, the root cause here is actually the opaqueness. Like that's that's essentially the biggest issue is that somebody was able to fake billions and billions of dollars of capital and not even fake it's really just hide it right it, it wasn't like just they made it up they basically just moved stuff around so it looked on the book like there was money where there wasn't um and then also kind of disguise everything as just business as usual this is us just loaning this is us just doing what we normally do and so if you're going to regulate away the the potential problem as you both said actually a really good market mechanism would be to make it as transparent as possible like if you could create that out of thin air oh wait we have that we have blockchains right like so it is the the answer here is actually already created like the solution exists but to your point in you need to actually regulate the decentralized exchanges in such a way that it promotes that openness and it promotes people being able to transact you'll still be left with some of the issues we've talked about before with deciding about like whitelists or block lists and things like those are still things that have to be debated and decided but as far as fixing this issue, yeah, if you could have seen all this, and that's why I asked the question at first, because I've seen a lot of people on Twitter talking about, well, this is all on chain. How did nobody see it? Crypto's dead. And it's like, that's not what happened, right? It's something that's actually kind of an archaic way of doing business and has been just, you've just looped in cryptocurrencies to it. So it's bad business practices, whether it's negligence or or it's actual malicious intent. Either way, it's not you're not going to be successful in the long run. And if people could have seen that from the beginning, a lot of people would still be whole um, or at least, you know, less hurt by by this collapse. It, yeah, it's, one, it's crazy. One thing I'm I've been thinking about a lot over the weekend is and this isn't like profound or anything, but it's just something that like contrast this is like regulation is inherently centralizing like the whole point of regulation prior to a decentralized world was we put it under some central authority that will audit verify keep people safe and that's because there was no better mechanism like there was no way to like prevent that from happening because there was always some centralization what i think is really interesting is with blockchain with crypto it could technically go to like a trustless decentralized world where like in my opinion what regulations would make sense is like things like this have to all exist on chain like every ledger every every holding every asset every movement should be verifiable to just the general community and if that existed i don't think this ever could have happened and so like i think that's one of the things that like for me at least pushes me more towards decentralized is because if it's trustless at least we can all see it for ourselves whereas now it's like even if it was fully regulated and there was some central authority, would they have caught it before it was a huge problem? Maybe not. You know, it's like just like those auditors didn't find it either. You know, it's like it could happen. Yeah, that's a good I, point. I, I think in terms of like whether or not it was malicious or not, I think I, I definitely think some of the staff were malicious and had malicious intent um, just for the fact that, you know, on when what 
what day was it on the 12th it came out that um there was a malicious payload pushed to the production servers of ftx and pushed out to uh people's accounts and people had their bank accounts drained and crazy something like I think 300, 600, I think it was 600 million was stolen by the hacker. And then the, uh, the white hat, uh, hackers at FTX were able to snag like a billion or something, uh, just so the hacker couldn't take more. Um, but like the amount of access that that hacker had to have, it's very clear that he was likely an insider, um, right. and like likely someone like within ftx and if that's the case like i mean that 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 just goes to show there are very clearly people who who had malicious intentions and wanted to steal from people so like uh, even if that wasn't to to your point i've been reading about that even if that wasn't sbf like even if he wasn't the string puller who had malicious intent there was clearly like negligence in access, right? Like the fact that someone could make that happen in a scale that was 600 million. And like, this isn't just like draining wallets tied to FTX. This is like literally withdrawing cash from bank accounts. Like that's crazy. And one thing I think is really interesting is what happens with that legally? Like it's FDIC insured in a bank, but if you give access to FTX, which might not be F, it, I don't think is FDIC insured. I don't think anything crypto is. Does that negate that FDIC insurance? Like even though you didn't, even though you didn't allow them to make that withdrawal, you still gave them connections to make that withdrawal, right? Like I don't know. I think this is like this is where more regulation will happen for sure. The interconnectivity of Web three finance and Web two finance, I think, has to be ironed out for sure. Just because like this is a weird gray area where FDIC might just be like no, and also FDIC's thresholds is really not that high. So like depending on how much you lost, you might never be made whole. <laughs> yeah, and. The other thing, too, I'm trying to find it, but there was actually somebody at FTX earlier this year tweeted that all of their funds were technically FDIC insured because they're held in FDIC insured bank accounts. And the FDIC came out and said, no, they're not. That's misleading. And we will we will pursue legal action if you keep misleading investors and and acting like you're FDIC insured. Oh, I haven't seen that. That was, this is a, I think that was Celsius. I think that was Celsius, the crypto bank. I remember. I'm pretty sure it's sure it FTX. I just found it this morning. Was it FTX? Because I know FTX, like, they're not supposed to, like, FDI insurance is for banks. For FD, banks, yeah. FTX, it, it shouldn't have operated like a bank. And yet, <laughs> yeah. and yet well, it I was. Think, <laughs> I think that's the weird gray area here to me is, like, it's not a bank. But you gave a not bank access to your bank. So like, right. are you FDIC yeah. insured on that money you're holding in a bank? Because you gave somebody the access to withdraw from it. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know. It's I don't know how it'll pan out, but it's for I sure a weird legal question. <laughs> I th- and I think FDIC insurance is usually if, to protect you against the bank collapse, right? So it's like if the bank is unable to provide you with the funds that you want, they're you're insured because the bank pays insurance, right? The if you like if so i have i have a family member who back in the day when you used to be able to withdraw money f- 
from, or you used to be able to deposit money in a bank account, like as much as you want. Like he would go to the ATM of his dad's ATM with an empty envelope and put it in and say that there was a thousand dollars in cash in it. And he would do it over and over. So it would show that his dad had like $10,000. And then he would withdraw over and over as much money as he could before his dad noticed. And his dad had no money. And so the bank certainly had no sympathy for him. It was like, you're letting your son use your card. That's on you. I don't know. This is much larger scale. There's a lot of people with leverage who can talk to regulators. There's also the implication for the, the broader economy in a time where you know people are actually strapped for cash and will be in the future. There's, there's some argument to be made that you um, try to make people whole as part of like some process because they were defrauded, right? That does happen where the government will step in and say, well, we'll try to make people whole because this was clearly fraud and the the company itself will never be able to make you whole. So it's possible that some people get some of their money back. But the the thing too, so uh, maybe it was maybe it was somebody else, but in any event, it does seem to me at least like this is probably not insured, but I don't know. The other thing that I found too was like, uh, so I don't know when FTX said this. I think it was on the 9th or 10th. They claimed that they were pulling a bunch of money out of their off their platform because they had to, because the Bahamian um, regulators told them that they had to withdraw funds and make all of the Bahamian residents whole. So this is what FTX says. This is FTX says, per our Bahamian HQ's regulation regulators, we've begun to facilitate withdrawals of Bahamian funds. As such, you may have seen some withdrawals processed by FTX recently as we comply with our regulators. So they're in this inner group, inner circle of people is in the Bahamas and there's a bunch of money being pulled out into the Bahamas. And they go, no, 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 don't worry. We had to do this. The regulators told us. And then the regulators came out and said, we have not directed, authorized, or suggested to FTX digital markets that it prioritizes withdrawals of Bahamians users. Further notes that such transactions may be characterized as voidable preferences under the insolvency regime and consequently result in clawing back funds from Bahamian customers. So they're saying not only that, but if you're the money is being pulled from there for Bahamian customers, they can actually take it back if they're insolvent. So even if this was true, it doesn't matter because they, they don't have to give you the money at the end of the day. And so... FTX comes out and says, like at this, as they're withdrawing funds, there's somebody stealing funds, right? So somebody was stealing funds, but at the same time, somebody was legitimately pulling funds out. Like there's all this stuff happening, and it's everybody's coming out saying, no, no, none of this is legit. And this is two days, four days ago, I guess. And it's nuts. This this just seems like they're trying, like FTX employees are just trying to get out. They're trying to get, they're trying to get their million. And they're yep. trying to fucking flee the company, the country, <laughs> and they're just trying to get out. Like that's what this seems like to me. I hope we can curse on this podcast, but this is this is a fucking we, mess. Any, we anybody watching FTX is cursing right now, so <laughs> so I think it's fine. We're not I saying it's anything fine. anybody didn't as soon as Bitcoin started collapsing. Oh man. And that's the other thing too. So actually, I'm curious from for both of you. Like, so we I think we all agree that like this is is really just more evidence that especially in the crypto space and especially with some of the issues we've discussed in the past that probably need some sort of regulation you know the more decentralized you are the safer it actually is even though there's potential for things like some of these economic attacks that we talked about where if you're just not properly set up you're at risk but 
it as, at least erased this risk where like as mm -hmm. things start to go bad, you would be able to see it. It would be more obvious, right? And in traditional finance too, like you can't pretend that you're not fa like failing completely when you are. Because even when we had, um, I can't remember the name of the bank, the European bank we were just talking about a couple of weeks ago. Oh, uh, Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse, even them, like, they, yes, they were putting a positive spin on everything, but they had to actually show you the books and the books turned out to be right. And it was up to people to decide, like, do I think this is going to fail or not? Um, now, I'm not I'm not a huge proponent of banks. I worked in the banking industry forever. Um, one of the reasons I don't work there right now is because it's a hard place to work and, and see what's happening or has happened in the past and be like, oh, let's just keep marching forward. But it's it is one of those things where they have figured out some things and in the banking world, more oversight does necessitate more centralization or at least the centralization of information and regulation. But in this space, this is like from an economic standpoint, this is exactly what you would want as a regulator is I can put into place mechanisms that just take advantage of people's natural behavior to allow it to regulate itself. Because if somebody has lots of money tied up in FTT and then they suddenly see like, oh, on the Al Alameda Research books, there's more FTT there than exists in the entire exchange. They would call it out and they would pull their money out, right? And, but it would have happened sooner, right? Before yep. it grew, grew to that level. So in that case, like your own desire to make returns and reduce your risk would cause enough people to do the due diligence or just to be tracking it, just to be watching it as it happens to know when something is going amiss. Basically, then the other side- yeah, what I think is interesting is basically every holder can become an inherent auditor with true transparency. Like if I if I have a lot yeah. of money tied up, I'm going to dig, I'm going to look into stuff. But like as a whole, like when you're when it's obfuscated between that, like non decentralization, like I can ask questions, but it doesn't mean they owe me answers or that I'll ever get answers, you know? <laughs> exactly. And the other side of, of the regulation is like, if we go down a road where the regulation, which, as I said, we tend to look at what's happening and say, well, let's regulate away the symptom. Um, and so in this case, the symptom might be that like, oh, we had no you know, minimum capitalization rules for this crypto exchange. We better add them. Right. So now we're going to have this regulation that just says you have to have a certain amount of USD on reserve so that you can avoid or when this happens, you'll have money to, to bail some people out. But at the same time, it's going to require then knowing how much is on reserve and you have to disclose more without requiring decentralization. It doesn't fix the problem. It just makes it means you shift it to someone else or it just takes a few years for it to happen again. And I'm worried that that the other fallout is, of this is that people are already do not understand the space. It's really widely true that it's really hard to follow and understand what's going on. They're very most people find think it's very risky it's shady anyway right there's all these different things that are like there's a real perception problem this is not going to help and as far as like adapting and going forward like this makes a new hurdle like you then have now have to explain away ftx every time you want to whether get into crypto or nfts or whatever it is as soon as you're involved in the space this is now going to be able to come to people's mind. You have collapse of Bitcoin and ETH over and over, right? They're volatile. And then also FTX, Celsius, uh, Luna, right? There's so many examples that happened so quickly and people lost billions of dollars. It's both a potential regulatory risk going forward and just an adaptation risk or increased adaptation risk going forward too.
Yeah. We'll see if honestly, um, if this bear market is what it's doing is it's weeding out the bad actors. And if what's going to be left over in the next couple of years is only the good actors who are genuinely trying to make the space, you know, to have a positive impact. And so, I mean, we'll see. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think there'll still probably be some bad actors. I think, you know, crypto scams are not going away. But I hope. (laughs) (laughs) I I can hope, right? (laughs) I think there will always be bad actors in any industry. I think having impacts like this will always lead to uh, the real solution people, like the people that are trying to solve serious problems, thinking about these like, these weird um outlying opportunities right so like like if to your point if all of this was decentralized or even if there was like just a ledger that was truly decentralized and always obvious it's like that would have let just individuals catch stuff sooner and so like i think the takeaway from this is like regardless of like the legal obligations from uh like certain governing bodies like a lot of people are asking people to start committing to as an exchange, regardless of if they're purely decentralized, use this tool that basically allows people to see what exists. Like what does the company hold? What are their assets? Are they verifiable? And so like a lot of people I know pulled money off onto like hardware wallets and said until so-and-so and so-and-so does this and ex- and discloses what they have on their ledger, I'm not willing to get in because I don't know that they have the liquidity to fix a bank run or something like this. And so like I think Coinbase is committing to doing that. A lot of the different exchanges are committing to that. And so like what's cool to see is, is that's not a governing body doing that. That's like a large group of people who hold the money saying, until you prove you're safe, I'm not gonna trust you with my assets. And so like that's one cool feedback loop that I think is interesting. Nothing fixed itself in financial crisis or in the Enron situation until all the courts went through some governing body delegated for a year or two and decide what the rules were. And here everybody's just like, you don't get access to my money until you fix it. And overnight they're like, okay, good, good point. Uh, here's our ledgers. <laughs> you can always watch these from now on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I honestly, there's a saying that rules, regulations, and warnings are written in blood. So I think we're going to get some regulation and laws and stuff that because of all this blood that's been spilt, it's going to be, it's it's coming. It's, and it's going to be much more aggressive than we thought it was going to be. I think, I think this speeds up timelines on things like that way faster than I thought it ever could be. Um, So I'm interested to see what the next like month, two months, quarter, especially year holds because like, this could be the beginning, you know, like who knows where this goes beyond this? Like what else was he, he was invested in a ton of things. He was deploying capital into a lot of industries. Like it might not stop with just crypto, honestly. <laughs> well, yeah, the VC side of it is what, what's really interesting to me because there's lots of VC money tied up in FTX, but also I, it was something like $500 million in the last few months was invested back into VCs by FTX, which is just, to me is weird. We'll say that for a different episode though. Um, all right. This is, uh, we'll, we'll keep following this, obviously. We'll pick back up next week with probably some more broad crypto NFT stuff. Or not, who knows? We'll see what happens this week, guys. Um, all right, thank you both. I and that's Web3, baby. That, <laughs> man, oh man, that's Web3. Written that's in blood. That's fine. I've never heard that. I've never heard that saying. I like that. That's true. That's really how it So works. good. So it's, good. You know where I got it from? My mom. <laughs>
<laughs> I love that. Um, can I keep that in? Because that yeah, you should leave that. I'm my mom. This in. My mom always said <laughs> she works in a hospital, um, and um, oh, the, the rules and regulations in the hospital are literally written in blood. That makes a so, lot of sense, actually. In that industry, it's like one to one trans. Like that's mm -hmm. exactly how they work. Yeah. Damn, that's so good. Yeah. All right, best show yet. Thanks, guys. See y'all. <laughs> See ya. See ya.